afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this second in our virtual event series from the U.S. Chamber Foundation. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, this is a biweekly series that's been featuring leaders from business and government and academia all about the path forward, the path forward and the return to work. You know, as we've been discussing, the return to work is really about a return to life because workplaces include churches and schools and summer camps and places where we have weddings and birthday parties. And so it's really about how we get back safely and sustainably to our way of life. And, and that starts with the return to work. During the kickoff series on Monday, a Harvard epidemiologist joined us and really talked about the big picture view of the pandemic and of the path forward. What he and other leaders have been stressing so much in this discussion, and I know you're reading and hearing about it as much as I am, is the importance of testing as the most essential step to recovery and, of course, return to work. And the reason why is pretty simple. We can't safely return to work if we can't control the spread of the disease. And if we want to control the spread of the disease, we have to understand who has it and who has had it. So we're going to take a deeper dive into testing today. I was telling our three guests in the virtual green room that I'm personally excited because I have so many questions about this topic and I know that the audience does too. So first we're going to hear from Jim Bullard, who's president and CEO of the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. He has been one of the leading voices on the economic imperative of testing. He'll help us understand why it is so important. Then we'll turn to Dr. Alan Wright. He is the Chief Medical Officer of Roche Diagnostics, and he's going to give us insights into the development of testing. Roche was the first corporation to get FDA approval for commercial COVID-19 test kits, and they managed to complete what is typically a two-year process in 12 weeks. We just can't wait to hear how. Then we will turn to Dr. Troy Brennan, who is Executive Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for CVS. He's going to talk to the really huge efforts underway by nationwide retailers like CVS to implement widespread testing. Throughout this conversation, I encourage you to post your questions using the chat function so that we will have plenty of time at the end to bring in audience Q&A, and we really want to hear from you. So with that, let's get started. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining the U.S. Chamber Foundation today. Let me turn first to Jim Bullard. Uh, Jim, a lot has been written, a lot has been discussed about the impact of the coronavirus on the U.S. economy. Give us your take. Uh, well, it's a very, the shutdown policy has very severe impact on the economy. Uh, we're looking at uh, GDP being way down in the second quarter. Uh, unemployment is going to spike up. Some estimates of unemployment for right now have it at 20%, 20.2% is one of the recent estimates in real time. So um, this impact is, is very severe. It's a uh, very blunt uh, policy that tens of millions of healthy people staying at home. Uh, why is that? It's because you don't know where the virus is. So I think this kind of policy is, uh, <clears throat> is perhaps something we had to do because we got taken by surprise uh, by the virus. But this kind of thing, you know, can only be done once. Uh, we're trying to make it through the, the second quarter here, and I do like to focus on the second quarter 
and then get to something else uh, in the third quarter where we have much better idea of, about where uh, where the virus is and therefore we can get back to a more normal production. One number I'd like to give you for production uh, in the second quarter, the U.S. economy normally produces around $5 trillion worth of goods and services. So under the current policy, we're down to just essential, um, essential production plus what can be produced at home. And I like to just think of that as something less than 50% of normal production, and therefore less than 50% of normal household income. So we're down about $2.5 trillion if this continues all the way through uh, the second quarter. Um, so that's the kind of scale that we're talking about. The CARES Act did appropriate about $2.3 trillion, so it is about on the right scale, but we can only do this for a little while. We need better and more uh, targeted policies to handle this crisis going forward. Beyond the sharp decline we've seen in, in consumer demand and these, and these really tragic and skyrocketing uh, jobless claims, what are the other big potential threats to the economy uh, from this pandemic? Well, going through an episode like this is if fraught with risks. Uh, we've never done anything like this before. It certainly makes sense that you would, in this particular situation, you would try to slow down the U.S. economy. Uh, I'd like I like to um, compare this to driving a car down the freeway at 70 miles an hour, but now you come come to the construction zone. You have to slow way down. You have to drive on gravel road for a while. You have to curb around until you get out of the construction zone. There's nothing wrong with the car. And similarly, there's nothing wrong with the economy itself, but we just don't have very much experience with trying to go through a, a situation like this. And you're taking a lot of downside risk with the US economy, including depression as a possible outcome. So we really have to play our cards right so we get the rapid recovery that we need on the other side of this uh, crisis. And, and what role do you think widespread testing plays in getting the economy up and running again? Yeah, I think uh, many people in the health community and in the economics community have said that uh, testing is the key to this. It's all about information. You need to know where the virus is. You need to know who's sick and who isn't sick. And when you have that knowledge, you'll be able to operate more or less normally uh, as an economy. We don't have that now. We've been hampered, uh, but I'm anxious to hear from our other guests about how we can get there. Uh, I do have a proposal that I'll float here about how we can do this, and this is how economists think about things. But the, the U.S. government, the federal government, is spending a lot of money here to try to uh, stabilize the ship through the storm. Uh, one thing that they could do is uh, create a pop-up industry in uh, in testing, and I know there are participants already, but we want this industry to be even bigger so that we can get uh, more or less daily testing of a wide swath of the American public. So to get that, I think uh, the government should say that they'll pay all reasonable and customary costs for production of uh, tests, and they'll let uh, firms sell those tests on an open market at a competitive price. If I have the economics right, that will drive the amount of tests uh, all the way to satiation point in the U.S. economy. We'll be flooded with tests, uh, so many that uh, we can't count them. 
And uh, that's the kind of situation we'd like to be in. You mentioned people trying to have family reunions and and workers trying to get back to work. All these people want these tests because they want to know where the virus is and they don't want to get their loved ones sick. So there's tremendous demand and we want to satiate the economy with uh, these kinds of tests. And at just one more point on this, sometimes people say, well, that's unrealistic, uh, that's too much. But at the numbers we're talking about, this is costing us $25 billion a day to have this shutdown policy. Uh, at these kinds of numbers, uh, we should be able to uh, produce plenty of tests. And if you unleash American industry to do that, uh, you'll get you'll get plenty of action. We produce a, an egg a day uh, for every person in the U.S. We produce a cup of coffee a day for every person in the U.S. We can produce a test a day for every person in the U.S. That leads to an interesting question, which is, how are the people who need to take these tests going to be able to afford it? You know, the Nobel laureate Paul Romer said that healthcare workers should be tested daily and everybody else should be tested weekly. That's a lot of expensive testing out there. How do you imagine individuals are affording this? Yeah, but the proposal I just gave you is going to drive that all the way down to zero. You're going to get the uh, you're going to get so many tests, and you're letting the firms keep the profits. They're going to sell the sell the test right up until the point where the last guy doesn't want to buy the test at any positive price. So you're going to be totally satiated in tests and the cost of the test is going to go down to zero. So, uh, I mean, you can you can argue with me about the economics of that, but but the um, the idea would be to create a sort of gold rush in, in produ production of tests and let people keep the profits, let them compete. Some of the tests might be more accurate, some of them might be faster, uh, some of them might be easier to use. Some of them might give a better signal. Let them all compete on that. But you, what you really want to do is just get them all out there right now so you get a better signal about where the virus is. There's a shark in the water. and People won't go back to the beach unless they're sure that the shark isn't in the water. And, and the only way we can uh, take care of that kind of problem in this situation is provide lots and lots of information about who's sick and who isn't sick. I think that you're right about the consumer confidence, you know, that in, and business owners have to be sure if they're going to reopen that their employees feel safe, that their customers will feel safe uh, for anything to, to think about reopening. Talk to us for a second about, you know, we're hearing all kinds of shapes of curves. Is it a U? Is it a W? Is it a V? Is it something that's not a letter? Um, what do you think are our chances of a quick recovery after such a steep decline? Well, if you get this testing proposal going and, and you get this number, a, a, a high scale of testing by the third quarter, then you'll have a V-shaped recovery and we'll forget about this. So I, I really think uh, this has to be done and has to be done now in order to get this, uh, get this going and end the crisis. You can't limp by with uh, half measures and other things that we're doing in other parts of the economy. You have to attack the problem directly. You have to know exactly where the virus is at all times while you're waiting for a therapeutic or, uh, or a, um, uh, a vaccination. But my proposal doesn't wait for that. I, I don't think you want to wait for that to get the economy running. And you certainly don't want to be sitting around for 18 months or longer uh, with this shutdown policy with uh, you know, all kinds of healthy people out of work. It's crazy. And what do you think happens to the economy if we don't get testing right? Uh, then I think we'll limp along and it'll be much, much harder. We can do other things that will be uh, imperfect substitutes for testing, like 
taking everyone's temperature, I think that actually would, um, you could go a long ways with that, but that's not going to be as satisfactory. Uh, you can have everyone wearing masks, uh, which which looks like we're going to we're going to have, and I think that's perfectly fine. But those aren't as good of, um, you know, aren't as solid of information. They're kind of imperfect substitutes for actually knowing uh, who's got the virus at every point in time. One last question for you before we turn to our next speaker. Can the economy afford another shutdown if we if we see another flare up after we ease into reopening? Uh, you can't do a shutdown on this on this magnitude. You have to you have to be more um, more careful about uh, where the risk is. I think it's a, a lot of this is about risk management, and your your uh, executive type audience here will certainly understand that the um, the actions that you're taking probably 10% of the actions that you're taking are controlling 90% of the risk, and the other 90% of the actions aren't doing very much. And so you want this kind of risk-based idea about where is the real risk of virus transfer uh, going on and in what other circumstances is it actually quite low risk. That's what you, you have to get more um, granular about that uh, in the future. I don't think you can just have blanket policies. You know, even the U.S., which is a big, powerful country with a big, powerful economy, we don't have enough resources to carry on this kind of policy uh, over the long time, uh, over the long term. Thank you, Jim. We'll be back to you in a minute in the in the Q&A section. I want to turn to Dr. Alan Wright, who is the Chief Medical Officer for Roche Diagnostics Corporation. Alan, we're talking about testing as if it's kind of a homogeneous thing, but really we're talking about different types of tests. Can you walk our audience through that? Sure. Um, there's really there's really two main areas of testing. One area is to determine if somebody's infected or not. And the other area of testing is, has somebody been exposed to that virus in the past? So the test that we came out with on March 13th was a uh, polymerase chain reaction test, uh, PCR test, which tests the uh, nuclear material of uh, the coronavirus. That test determines if somebody has active virus in their uh, nasopharynx or oropharynx. So that person, if they test positive, actually has the virus present. Um, the other type of test is, and the other big question is, have you been exposed? Does, do you have immunity? And what's called an antibody test, also known as a serology test, is used to do that. What happens in the body is that when the body is exposed to the virus, it raises an immune response. Antibodies are part of that immune response, and they usually start rising in the blood a week, 10 days, two weeks after the initial exposure to the virus. That second test, that antibody test, really determines if somebody has been exposed in the past and that they are potentially immune now if they test positive for that antibody. So could you, I think the other part of confusion, at least for me, is understanding the test process, right? That what there's, there's having a test administered and then there's getting the test results. What are the steps and the process and logistics between those two things? Okay. 
Well, there, first of all, there's the obtaining the sample. So in the, in the case of the, the PCR test, uh, that is a nasal swab, a uh, oral swab in the back of the throat, or a swab in the back of the throat through the nose. Or now they're looking at, at saliva as a sample source, where you're actually trying to identify the organism. The other type of sample is a venous blood. It's the, it's the blood test that we're all familiar with in the doctor's office where they take blood out of your arm. Both of those go to uh, large automated machines, uh, different types of machines. So it's important to know that these tests aren't flowing through the same type of instrument or analyzer. So there's no bottleneck there. So we're actually pulling in more machines to do the testing uh, for, uh, for that antibody test. So what happens is the um, uh, sample of sputum or, or saliva goes through this uh, test, uh, this analyzer, and then a result comes out. And that typically uh, takes multiple hours. Or in the case of an antibody test, uh, it will run in, in uh, several minutes at, at very high volumes. A final type of test is a point of care test where you have a device at the site where the patient is tested and those, those results are typically uh, available in under a half an hour. But those are uh, low volume uh, testing capabilities per device. Can you talk about the accuracy of these tests? I think the news is reported on people who had a negative nasal swab, but then later the antibodies showed up. Can we trust the results of the testing? Um, well, there's there's two components to that. One is the, the accuracy and precision of the device that is running the test and the characteristics of the test. And the other component is the quality of the sample that is presented to the machine. So there's a difference between the viral recovery rates of swabbing somebody's nostril, the anterior nares, and swabbing the back of the throat, where the back of the throat uh, statistically has a higher yield of virus than somebody who just has a, a swab in the front of the nose. Mm. Secondly, um, these viruses are DNA, or pardon me, RNA, and that's fragile stuff. And they have to be handled with uh, certain types of transport media. And if the transport media are not the correct transport media, you know, the actual fluid that the swab is put back into, then the sample can degrade over time. And that can also lead uh, to a uh, false negative result. And then the final thing is that there is variation in the accuracy and precision of the types of tests that are available on the market. Yeah, and I, I think that's it's part of what's causing so much confusion. You know, if we listen to Jim and and believe that widespread testing is going to be important to jumpstarting the economy, then the accuracy of the test, but also the confidence that people have in the test results will be so important. Switching for just a second, I think another topic on testing has been we're we're basically still testing, I believe, people with symptoms. 
And so if that's true, and correct me if it's not, when do you imagine that we have the supplies and the availability of tests that will allow us to do the kind of widespread testing that reopening jobs would require? Well, I, I get back to the, the two broad categories of testing. One is testing individuals who actually have the organism present, and the other is testing uh, individuals for whether or not they've been exposed in the path and they're immune. I think it's the concept of the immunity passport that you've heard uh, floated out there. Uh, also, understanding um, uh, immunity better and immunity of populations help us in, improve the models. So both of them have uh, a component in managing epidemics. Um, both of them have influence on the models uh, when we determine when we can go back to work. Uh, and, um, you know, widespread testing will be and is becoming rapidly available as, as uh, you know, more and more tests come online. I just have so many questions I could stay. I could stay on the phone with you gentlemen, I think all day. Uh, and I know that the audience has a lot of questions too, but let me ask you kind of one more before we switch to another speaker. And that is, as you think about the two different types of testing that you just outlined, and you think about the kind of need for widespread availability and accurate results, what do you think the biggest barrier is right now? For uh, testing, um, I, I think we need uh, better uh, point of care tests. Uh, clearly, one of the things we learned was, especially with our acute care hospitals, uh, there are some uh, situations, healthcare um, uh, institutions, some critical industries that would need very rapid turnaround times uh, for point of care testing. Uh, additionally, um, the large widespread antibody testing that will really give us a very good picture of what this illness is all about. So um, with, with regard to um, uh, the, the molecular testing, that's the PCR testing, which actually um, uh, detects the virus, uh, many uh, quality manufacturers are, are now producing those tests in quantity to make them available for, for the healthcare um, system. With, with regard to the um, antibody testing, we're looking for the immunity of populations. In the next uh, several weeks, uh, these same manufacturers are going to bring to market uh, very high capacity solutions that will rapidly provide testing for, for the population to determine the immunity and exposure of the population. We've been hearing a lot about that at the chamber, the idea that this is exponential, you know, that, that um, as, as the testing starts to ramp up, it will become uh, more available exponentially. And I think turning to Dr. Troy Brennan, uh, the Executive Vice President, Chief Medical Officer of CVS, this is right in your wheelhouse. I mean, you all have been thinking really hard about scale testing capabilities, how we scale it, how we reach the entire company. So let me ask you to jump in here. 
Well, so far, the most of the testing that we've been doing is in high volume sites. And uh, to go to Alan's uh, description, we've been using a point of care test that's available from Abbott. So we get results within about 13 minutes with that. And uh, we've been doing that at tent sites. We run about a thousand people a day through each of those tent sites. We have three now. We're opening another one in another state tomorrow. And we'll continue to sort of open some of those in this, what we consider to be the sort of blunt part um, of the response uh, to the uh, pandemic. But then over time, we believe it's going to be necessary to uh, make the testing available on a much more distributed fashion and have it be, as you've already suggested, something people do um, almost as a matter of fact. Um, and so that's going to require getting it distributed into the community. And that's where our 10,000 locations come into play. Uh, we could play a role uh, with regard to testing um, using our existing stores. And we prefer the point of care tests simply because it doesn't have any uh, uh, duration of time that one waits to find out their results. We think if people are infected, they need to know right away and need to take steps, either to sort of contact other people they may have been in touch with or to go home and quarantine. And the problem with a lot of the large-scale molecular tests is that it requires a send-away. I think that that'll be an important part of the solution as well, but we think that the more important part is probably going to be uh, point of care. And then as we think about it, we have to think about, as Alan was already mentioning, the sensitivity and specificity of the test. Sensitivity refers to the false negative, right? And that's a really bad thing when you get told you don't have the virus, but you actually do. And then you're out in the environment circulating around. So we want to make sure the tests are as sensitive as possible. And we actually think that probably combining the viral test uh, that Alan referred to that's done with a nasal swab or saliva uh, with an antibody test is the best way to go. In the first part of the infection, you're going to find virus in the nares and um, the tests are going to perform pretty well. But as the infection goes on, the virus becomes less prevalent in the nares and you could get a false negative simply because you haven't identified the virus that was there. But during that period of time and different people have different views about when the antibodies come up, we tend to think about three to four days after symptoms appear, antibodies are be going to begin to appear. Uh, if you combine the two tests, then you get a much higher sensitivity, much lower false negative rate, and even a higher specificity, which refers to the positive rate. So um, that's the way that we're looking at it, which is point of care and probably stack tests to get the highest sensitivity possible. That then really suits what you're trying to do, which is to affect the behavior of the people uh, who are um, uh, carrying the virus. Uh, and as a result of that, dampen it down over time. So how many tests do we think we need? And I, I'm, I'm coupling that with also a how much do they cost question. And going back to kind of what we were talking to Jim about, you know, who ends up paying for this? Well, those are all questions that have to do with sort of public policy, much more so than science. And so I would only be hazarding guesses, but can at least discuss the parameters associated with that. Um, with regard to how many tests we need right now, the estimates run between 50 and 60 million um, uh, per week. And the Romer estimate that you referred to is the much higher one. I don't think most people are that high. More people are aggregating in the sort of 10 to 15 million tests um, uh, per week. Uh, that's still a lot of tests. With regard to the cost, the government is re reimbursing between 50 and $100 of, uh, for these tests. Uh, 
They just mentioned that they're going to go higher on the antibody test up to $100. And the viral test, they originally came in at about $50. So if you can think about that, then usually a small fee that goes for the person who's doing the testing, the test could be anywhere between $100 and $150 a piece. But you know, when you multiply those together, you do get an enormous bill. You could be spending three to four billion dollars uh, per week on testing. But again, uh, what you're trying to do is prevent a second or a third or a fourth two to three trillion dollar shutdown. So there's a tremendous return on investment associated with any money that's spent um, on testing. Uh, talk to us for a minute about uh, CVS's plans. I mean, we saw the federal government announce that pharmacists could order and administer these tests. We heard you a minute ago talk about being in 10,000 communities. Talk to us about your plan. Well, we have a lot of experience with point-of-care tests. Uh, we run the largest of the uh, retail pharmacy uh, clinics. Ours is called Minute Clinic, and we have about 1,100 of those, and we uh, employ over 3,000 nurse practitioners and licensed professional nurses, and they do a lot of point of care testing. Uh, so we have a great deal of experience and a great deal of experience with the various um, uh, manufacturers um, of those tests. So we kind of know what we're doing with regard to point of care testing. And um, we believe that we can train pharmacists and pharmacy techs to play many of the same roles that our nurse practitioners and our LVNs play. So it does give us the ability to be able to think about how we could begin to elaborate a much broader um, um, testing regime than the tent structures that we're relying on right now. We're getting a lot of experience with running high volume point of care testing uh, in those tents. And we're getting better and better at techniques that uh, reduce the amount of protective equipment that's necessary, yet make sure that all of our workers are safe. And we're getting a better understanding of how we might be able to do this in other sites. So I would say that um, we're very eager to try to contribute uh, to this. We think we have an important role to play. We think it's a key play with regard to public health over the course of the next 18 months until a vaccine is developed. It's interesting that you made that segue. I was going to ask you the same question. You know, at the Chamber, we've launched a big effort this week about how to get back to work. And this foundation series has been about gathering ideas that might inform that effort. And yet, one of the things we've been saying is a lot of people have never left work, right? There are people in the Roche laboratories. There are people in the CVS stores. And so you've had 300,000 employees who have largely not stopped working. Are there lessons that you could give other employers as they think about opening up? No, I would say the the stores uh, uh, and the pharmacies are uh, a big part of what we do. Probably about 180,000 people out there, but nearly another 120,000 people who are in offices and things like that. Like and um, like a lot of companies, most of our uh, employees who work in offices are not badging in. What we found with the stores is that it's very important to understand exactly sort of how fierce the uh, pandemic is in a particular area. It's different, grossly different in, in different places. There's 20 and 30 fold variation in prevalence uh, between states today. And then use of protective equipment has been very important for us. So we use some N95 masks, especially in high uh, prevalent states, but by and large, we're relying on uh, gloves and surgical masks and then appropriate behavior uh, by customers. Increasingly, we're asking customers to wear masks when they're in the stores. We're employing social distancing in the stores. Some stores 
are keeping the number of people who are in the store down. So you have to adapt to the environment and to the uh, strength of the pandemic in a particular area. But so far we've been very successful um, and we're getting really, really high satisfaction scores from our customers thanks to our devoted, our devoted pharmacists, pharmacy techs um, and store members. You know, just a second ago, Alan commented that he thought within a couple of weeks we would be looking at the availability of widespread tests, but it keeps our audience still asking. I can see the questions coming in. How long until we have enough tests to test every person in America? So do you agree with that couple of weeks? Does that mean April? Well, I think any of us would be very um, wary of putting an exact date on when there's going to be a sufficient number of tests. Ellen's correct, at least in my estimation, in that there are a number of new entrants coming in. Uh, we have seen crummy tests come on the market. Um, there's just an article in the New York Times today about the tests that the National Health Service in Great Britain bought. So you need tests that have these operating characteristics, the sensitivity and specificity that you expect. But there's a great deal of effort underway. There's more tests that are coming in for emergency approval um, at the uh, Food and Drug Administration. And they're of the variety of sorts. Some of them are the large molecular tests, but nearly every manufacturer who does large molecular tests, Roche included, um, has um, approaches that are closer to being um, at the point of care um, and in a CLIA way format. So, uh, we do think that there's going to be a lot more tests available, and we think that we're going to be able to take advantage of those uh, advances to be able to make those tests available to the American public. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, let me ask a question here that came in for Jim. Um, I'm going to read it to you. As a former state treasurer, my question is this. So many of the current pressures for government relief seem related to a lack of liquidity in cash flow. Lack of cash seems to be another pandemic we're facing. What can we do to encourage more cash building practices in both the private and public sectors? Um, this is from a uh, treasurer, did you say? Yep, Sorry. to a former state treasurer. Oh. Yeah, um, well, state revenues are down and, and municipal revenues are down, and there are two things that are happening on those uh, dimensions. One is the CARES Act does provide some resources for states. Uh, some of that will go back to unemployment insurance claims, uh, but other parts can be used uh, more broadly uh, across the states and, and counties. Um, and then the Fed also has a program jointly with Treasury to buy uh, certain types of municipal debt, uh, which should help us get through the pandemic adjustment period, uh, especially during the second quarter here, where we're really, uh, really trying to bridge, uh, build a bridge to the other side of this uh, crisis, get into the third quarter, transition quarter, and then uh, get out of this by the fourth quarter. So um, I think there are some resources for states, and, and I think Congress may be uh, willing to put more money in on those uh, projects. Do you, while I have, while you have the microphone, um, what do you see coming in kind of a fourth round of support and uh, in the next round of what Congress acts on? Do you see uh, other support for state budgets coming? Um, what, what are your predictions? Uh, I'd give a couple of comments for your uh, listeners and viewers here. I think uh, 
I, I think uh, this SBA lending program, uh, which has turned out to be very popular, uh, I think when that was being discussed just two weeks ago, it wasn't clear that there'd be a lot of take up on that, but there has been. Um, so I think Congress is poised to refresh that. I guess it ran out of money just today, but uh, I think Congress will come back with uh, more resources for that program. That is mostly grants really uh, to small businesses and that I think that's appropriate as we're trying to get through this pandemic period, pandemic adjustment period. And then uh, the other thing I would uh, advise listeners and, and viewers on is that the Fed programs, which are joint with Treasury, most of those are focused on uh, maintaining market liquidity, maintaining price discovery in financial markets. And that's critical so that we don't get a market freeze up while we're trying to do all this adjustment here. So. Uh, so far, that's worked very well, and we can certainly do more, but it's worked very well, and our measures of liquidity have uh, have come back. They were at bad levels maybe two uh, weeks ago or more, uh, but they've come back to more normal levels now, and I, I'm hopeful that that'll be successful as well. So I think we're doing things that, um, that are going to help us here. That's great, and, and I do think underlying all of this we keep coming back to consumer confidence and employee confidence it's one thing to decide to reopen the economy but if the customers don't show up or the employees aren't comfortable showing up we have a different problem and it it gets to some of what we're hearing today as people start to name dates different dates about when non-essential businesses might go back to work and so let me ask either alan or troy or both of you what do you think? Could we open non-essential businesses without widespread testing? Are there other mitigating factors, maybe gradual reopening by region or using other social distancing or PPE or temperature checks? Or do we really have to wait until there's widespread testing? Go ahead, Alan. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. <laughs> um, I, I think that that we should uh, have um, widespread testing and basically uh, assess uh, some of the preliminary results uh, of the testing in in the next few weeks. I, I think more information applied to the uh, models that we are using to determine policy will will shape the decision on when to reopen and and give us a much better understanding of when the best time to reopen is you know you you just look at at the models that are influencing policy in the last several weeks and they're they're changing daily or every several days as we gain more information remember we're we're watching the emergence of a new disease uh before uh, December, it was really unclear if COVID-19 disease existed. And now we're, we're basically, um, you know, learning about the disease as we're trying to treat it, as we're trying to measure it. So, uh, that, you know, that, those are all factors that weigh into our decisions that we're making here. Uh, I, would agree with, I, I would I would tend to agree with that. Um, you know, I think that you, we do have the experience with both MERS and SARS, which are relatively sort of similar coronaviruses, and then the more common human coronaviruses that circulate as a matter of course. And so those all give us some idea about what to expect here. But I think that, and you had the epidemiologists from Harvard 
um, on earlier in the week, but almost everything points to the fact that the longer you leave um, uh, people in a sort of quiet period like we're in now, the more you knock back the overall prevalence of the virus and the more likely it's going to be that you'll get a period of time once you do open up where things are relatively quiet. It all depends on what the prevalence of the virus is at that time, but you know, a longer period of quiet like this will drive prevalence down and give you a, a longer period in which you can prepare. Um, and the other thing I think is that many corporations are trying to decide what's their response going to be to testing. We're in the middle of that right now um, ourselves and going to have to make plans over the course of the next couple of weeks. But once you begin to make plans and once there's the availability of more tests, you can see a really significant increase in the number of tests and broader availability uh, by June. Now, hopefully what happens is that we quiet this thing down. We don't open up too fast. Um, and, you know, June and July, we have relatively low circulating amounts of the virus. And then we've got a testing regime that's in place, along with a contact tracing regime, however that's going to look. Uh, that's basically going to allow us to alert people to the fact that they're infected and get them out of circulation. Um, as quickly as possible. And as a result of that, have a very low background rate um, of infection. What we're doing is basically sort of decreasing the overall spread of the virus, the so-called r naught factor. So I think there's a real possibility that um, we could see the circumstance in which the testing's coming up in June and July, we're prepared for it. And we're probably preparing for it for the early part of the fall because this virus probably will circulate somewhat like the other coronaviruses do. And certainly that's what the Harvard team um, has been uh, predicting. Um, so that's what we want to be prepared for. And by then we should have uh, the, the testing capacity that we need and be prepared to spend the money on it. Again, just to sort of reiterate, if you're doing like 20 million tests um, uh, a week, you're going to have a substantial cost associated with that, but it's going to be far less than the trillions of dollars we're talking about associated with these shutdowns. And we will hit another shutdown if we don't learn how to control this virus, at least until there's a vaccine available. Jim, did you have, did you have your hand up? Yeah, I would very much agree with uh, Troy's description there uh, about how this can work. And uh, but I would like to come back to a topic earlier, which often comes up in discussions like this about the accuracy of the test. And I think it's natural uh, uh, for scientists and doctors to worry about type one and type two errors. But I'm just going to give you the, the economist version of this. What we have now is a situation where you're getting no signal from uh, the human interaction. So if you go and shake somebody's hand, you're completely at risk. You don't know what you've got and you don't know the situation. So you might be getting the virus, you might not. And so any test, anything that gives you a signal uh, is valuable uh, in this circumstance. And any test is gonna have a signal to noise ratio. So some are gonna be better than others. Of course, we want them to be great. We want them to be perfect, but they're all gonna have type one and type two errors. So I think it's, it's uh, we don't wanna let the perfect be the enemy of the good, I guess is my, my sense on this. We wanna be able to get lots of tests out there, let them compete. The better ones should demand higher prices and that, the crappy ones will get uh, shunted aside. Uh, but uh, to me, uh, it's that signaling aspect that that you need. When you think of a home pregnancy test, you know you get you get the positive signal in the home pregnancy test. Probably the first thing you're going to do go to your doctor and get another test. 
So I think the same thing would happen here. If you got any kind of inkling that you were really sick, you'd probably go right to your doctor and check it again. Uh, so I, I'm, I, I just don't want this discussion to get wrapped up in whether, you know, exactly how good the test is and things like that, because I think that's not the critical element here. You need some kind of signal about where the virus is. That's interesting. It, it reminds me of another question, which is what we're seeing in South Korea, where we seem to be seeing people who recovered and then are testing positive again. Uh, and the question I think is, are people actually getting reinfected? Is this faulty testing? Um, do either of you, Alan or Troy, have a view about this? Can you get yeah, this yeah. a second time? I'll go first this time. Um, the, I would say that we don't have good information on that right now. What we do know is that MERS at least does not seem to uh, provide much immunity, but there is relatively uh, sturdy immunity uh, found that was found with SARS. And so, and the other human coronaviruses are sort of in between. So uh, I would say right now, no one's clear how sturdy the immunity is going to be associated with this. A lot of experts, including Dr. Fauci, have been quoted as saying they're hoping that there's going to be substantial immunity associated with it. And of course, that's what we would all like. We don't want people um, getting um, uh, reinfected. And to the point about the testing accuracy, I agree. You don't want the uh, uh, perfect to be the enemy of the good here. But I do believe that with stacked tests of, of, of a viral test and an antibody test, even in point of care, we can get up to a 95 or 98 percent sensitivity, mm -hmm. which is really good um, and uh, would be a really important weapon for us in terms of tamping down um, um, uh, new episodes of the pandemic. Alan, did you want to add anything? Well, I, I think uh, Troy really highlights um, uh, a testing strategy. Uh, testing strategies really need to be uh, adapted to communities and to industries and the, and the situation. There are some situations that uh, a, a less accurate and precise screening test, like a test strip, would be, would be very good, followed up by uh, a much more precise test. Uh, but there are other situations, like if you were defending a, uh, a healthcare facility, an acute care hospital, you may want to go right to a highly accurate uh, set of tests because that, that is sort of a very critical environment uh, to work in. Regarding your Korean uh, example, um, again, get back, getting back to my point, we don't know how long uh, the virus uh, persists in, in somebody uh, after they are clinically recovered. But the, uh, the other thing we don't know is we don't know how long that person will test positive, yet they are clinically unaffected and they're not contagious. We, we just don't know at what level um, somebody moves from contagious and spreading virus into the environment to having virus that is living in their oropharynx, but it is not contagious and is not symptomatic and is not at risk for becoming ill. These are the kinds of things that given our history of a few months of, expo of exposure to this virus and, and studying it, that we just don't have that information yet. You know, when I was talking to Dr. Uh, Hanage from 
Harvard on Monday, he made the point that one of the good things about the surge and the peak getting to the other side, in addition, of course, to the human impact and, and the decline of the human toll and the tragedy, but it was also that it would allow more medical experts, more doctors, more scientists to look at the data, to really understand why children weren't getting ill. And if children weren't getting ill, could they still transmit? And, you know, things that kind of you're discussing here, how long are you contagious? What happens with immunity? And so it was a optimistic view that as the peak in the mm -hmm. cases starts to decline, more people can turn their attention to some of these issues. But something he said that I thought was a little less optimistic was the point that there has never been a vaccine for a coronavirus. So he was a little less optimistic about the possibility that a vaccine would be discovered. Probably more, much more optimistic about therapeutics that would make it less deadly and, and treatable, but questioning about the vaccine. Uh, do you have a view on that, Alan? Um, he, he's right that there, there has never been a vaccine created uh, for uh, coronavirus, uh, but um, you know, scientific technique is always evolving and there is a renewed emphasis on vaccine technology and vaccine science. So, so I, I remain hopeful that, that a, a vaccine will, will be created. Uh, but, you know, time, time will really, will really uh, tell on that. You know, it's, I, you know, just like past coronaviruses, you know, 20% of common colds are coronavirus. Mm -hmm. uh, those are very different than what we're confronting now with COVID-19 disease. Uh, there's nothing saying that because of the uh, morbidity and mortality that COVID-19 disease has makes it more immunogenic and more prone to um, developing a vaccine. Turning the topic a minute, um Troy, to the kind of global learning that you know, we're talking about what we can all learn as this goes forward. Alan mentioned how new this is. So we're all kind of learning as we're inventing and innovating here. What about what we're seeing in other countries? And, um, you know, Switzerland's been opening up some in April. Other countries have been doing that. How do you feel that the global information sharing has been going? Well, very well, I think. Um, obviously, the the best models, you know, the, uh, Chris Murray's models out of uh, the University of Washington um, are amongst them. They're taking advantage of the information from the variety of different episodes of the pandemic in different countries. Those are also going to provide us with lessons about sort of who did really well and who was a bit slower. Um, and the Swiss is a good example. You know, they had had a very high uh, peak, but uh, they've come down very quickly. And the question is, what's been different there as opposed to Spain, as opposed to Italy, as opposed to the experiment in Sweden, where they really haven't done um, as much social distancing. So um, as Alan suggested, we're going to be learning a lot from all of those approaches. And uh, the modelers are putting all that information into models today to try to get us some better idea of exactly sort of how safe we are going to be for how long and where how we can predict where the virus might be coming back. Um, with regard to the vaccines, uh, it's breathtaking. The research is going on um, into vaccine for this uh, particular ailment for all the obvious reasons. 
And I, I think it's very hard to predict when the vaccine is going to be available. But I think that uh, the overall scientific consensus is that we may have something workable within 12 to 18 months. And that's going to be really important to finally dig us out of this um, uh, particular problem. And, and therapeutics well before that, right? I mean, we're, that's what we're expecting. Well, there's a lot of testing going on right now, including randomized control trials of probably over 60 or 70 different uh, medications looking for things that can help with this sort of overwhelming um, uh, inflammation uh, that's occurring uh, for individuals who do very poorly um, uh, with this virus. So that's going to be uh, as important as well. And I know that uh, people are setting up those randomized control trials rapidly both in hospitals and in testing sites like the ones that we run to find individuals who are infected and test whether or not early intervention can actually uh, lead to a much less uh, severe disease. So uh, that's exciting as well and it's great to sort of see that this research is occurring not just in the United States but in Europe and in China um, and throughout uh, East Asia. So we're going to be getting a lot of answers soon. It's early, but uh, there is certainly a great deal of optimism about the fact that we're going to find some things that'll help work with this overwhelming respiratory inflammation that we see. Let me um, end our fascinating session today with kind of a lightning round and ask each one of you what you think this recovery curve looks like. And you can choose if you're talking about the health crisis recovery curve or the economic curve or both. But is this a V? Is this a W? Is this a U? Uh, what, how should the audience be thinking about the recovery curve? And I'll, I'll go in order of the speakers. So Jim, we'll start with you. Um, I think it can be a V, but it's, uh, it's up to us to get the right policies to get the V to happen. Uh, I don't think people should be complacent or um, or defeatist and just think that, uh, oh, we're, we're, um, there's nothing we can do. There are lots of things that we can do and lots of things that have become possible at the kinds of uh, kinds of numbers that you're talking about for the cost of the economy. You know, I mentioned earlier, $25 billion a day is sort of what you're talking about. And, and at those kind of costs, you can do a lot of things that you wouldn't have thought before uh, were possible, but you have to do them in order to get to the other side and be able to live with the, the disease for a while. I think that's a, one of the critical things here is that we have lots of risks in the economy. We have lots of things all around the economy that are, that are um, fatal to humans. And uh, we we find ways to manage those risks and to and to get those um, handled in a way that we can go about our ordinary business, and we have to do that with uh, with this one as well. I understand that we have to get the incidence of infection down, and we have to get the uh, uh, fatalities down. But once we get down to a low level, we can behave in a way and run the economy in a way that that uh, is respectful of the damage that the disease can do. And that's how we should think of it. And that's how a business would think of managing uh, its risk. Alan, what's the shape of the recovery curve? Well, uh, I'm not an economist, so I will uh, choose to just talk about how, how this epidemic has uh, affected our business. I, I am optimistic and I'm optimistic in innovation and just people finding new ways to work. And I really want to reflect back to, I began my training uh, during the AIDS epidemic. 
and I look at AIDS being uh, uh, the cause of it being elucidated and then treatments being created over years. And here we're talking about finding solutions for a virus, finding a vaccine in two years, testing in 12 weeks. Uh, there is global collaboration. Emails are flying back and forth. DNA sequences are being mailed to, or RNA sequences are being mailed to one another. Yes, it's going to be different. Yes, we will recover, uh, but we're, it'll, it will look differently. We'll, we'll work differently. Uh, and and it will have effects on the economy. Some parts of the economy will be impacted, but other parts of the economy will will you know develop to replace it. And what do you think, Troy? You know, I think we'll get the testing regime in place that we need, and I think that we'll develop electronic contact tracing and similar to what South Korea has done. That's going to prove to be sort of really helpful in the recovery phase. But we're coming up to the sort of most sensitive time right now, which is how long can we stand uh, to keep the country in this sort of quiet mode before we begin to open back up? Uh, if we open back up too soon, then we will be back with another huge bump in prevalence of the virus um, over the course of a two to three to four or five month period of time. We want to avoid that. On the other hand, you don't have to be an economist to know there's a great deal of human suffering just associated with this kind of financial economic slowdown that we're having. It has real public health effects to keep the country calm like this, to uh, in, in, uh, encourage people to be socially isolated the way we are and take down businesses. We know that we've put out of business as a result of that. So this is going to be an important set of policy decisions coming up. Myself as a public health uh, expert, I would try to keep us calm for as long as possible to keep us in the stage the phase of social distancing so that we get the best possible decrease overall uh, in the virus. And then we give ourselves a much longer time to sort of prepare for the periods of time in which it begins to pop back up before we do get that vaccine, which will get us out of the woods. I love ending on that um, optimistic note. And I, and I really have to say that uh, Alan's words really spoke to me because I'm amazed at the resilience of people. If you think of just a few short months ago, if you would have said that America would be working from home, trying to take care of their neighbors, trying to slow down um, and be this resilient about it, I think we all would have been shocked. And so watching people take care of uh, the underserved and watching people innovate and businesses innovate and the medical and scientific communities innovate, it's just, it's very heartening. And, and my, my hope is that we get through the other side of this with new muscle that allows us to continue to communicate and collaborate around the globe uh, in this way. It's very heartening. Uh, we really appreciate all three of our experts joining us today. Uh, if you missed Monday's series, you can see it at uschamberfoundation.org. We will be back again Monday at three o'clock as the U.S. Chamber Foundation continues to explore the path ahead. How do we navigate through this crisis? We've had one crisis, the public health crisis. We are also having second crisis, which is the economic crisis. We know what a job means to a family, to a community, and to health outcomes. And we want to make sure that we are balancing and getting back to work when it's safe and sustainable to do so, uh, but is also helpful to every family and community member. So thank you again for being with us. And we very much look forward to seeing you again Monday at 3 o'clock.
Each week, we bring you insights from the people who are thinking about ways to reopen the economy and get millions of Americans back to work in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Join us every Monday and Thursday for a new episode of Path Forward. You can learn more about the Chamber Foundation at uschamberfoundation.org. Thank you.